this is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week, two wonderful human beings, Tia Vasilio. Hello. And Paul Jaisley. Hello. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm very excited to talk to you both about comic books. I spent the last week and a half just plowing through so many of them, so mm-hmm. I'm ready to talk about them. But let me ask the question that I have to ask every single week. At, at this point, it's not a choice. Um, we've made it a legal mandate for this show, and it is how have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Tia. Well, I moved across the country recently, mm-hmm. and I'm finally sort of getting unpacked and settled, and everything's on fire, but it's fine. I can walk to the beach, and my apartment is so much bigger than it was in New York, so that's mm-hmm. nice. I have room to unpack all of my comic books. I found <laughs> right, I could right. just shop my comic books that I unpacked that I haven't seen in a while because I didn't have anywhere to put them in New York. <laughs> so I was yeah, like, right, oh, right. cool. This is new. Um, yeah. And, but I actually read a comic book that uh, is, is not coming out actually until October 21st, but oh, snap. I'm going to tell you about it. Cause that's what I read this week. Uh, Cause I have cool friends and I got to read it early and Everyone, like, I think who thinks it sounds interesting should pre-order it because that'll help your comic shop a lot. And it's called Giga, number one. It's published by Vault Comics, written by Alex Pacnadel, art by John Lee, and colors by Rosh, letters by Aditya Bidikar. And, like, look, I it the sort of high-level... Um, concept here is that human beings in a post-apocalyptic world um, after a giant robot war where the good robots won, um, they invited human beings to like use them as habitat, like to live in them. And the humans like have a religion where they worship the robots basically. Cool. Yeah. So the robots, they're not like buds. Like I think the robot, they're they're like hibernating the ones that are being used as habitat. So they don't. Interesting. Yeah. Which I guess is really necessary if you're going to worship something as gods. Like I think that you need that kind of like distance from from their person in that way you know yeah. so that makes sense yeah, yeah. um so the main character is this guy evan who is um he's like an engineer and the core of engineers it also seems to be like a religious order and he at the beginning of the book he's a student or a novice in this religious order and he gets kicked out because his friend causes this like really violent incident accidentally i think um although maybe not um, who knows? Uh, keep reading. And Mystery. Uh, yeah. And so he gets kicked out because he doesn't like tell on her basically. And so then you fast forward 13 years later, he's living this pretty rough life as a scavenger. Um, I guess I should mention he is like in a wheelchair. So that's extra hard for him to like get around in this mm-hmm. post-apocalyptic world. And so one day while he's scavenging, he discovers a dead Mecca. Mecha? Mecca? I don't know how you pronounce that. I'm not a robot girl. <laughs> I-, I think it's Mecca yeah. um, from the handful of robot people that I've right. talked to. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> anyway, so the discovery of this dead Mecca is really important for him and his kind of smaller story within the world. But it also sets 
the kind of bigger mystery for the overarching world. I think I think it it, and it has a really nice balance. I think um, sometimes writers get a little carried away with like setting the world and the theme and like world building is not a story, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, especially mm-hmm. with a first issue, I think. Um, you really need to strike that balance between like letting people kind of know what the lay of the land is, but also giving them entry points as like specific storylines that characters are going to be moving through to bring the audience through. And so I think it's really elegantly done here with this discovery of the dead Mecca, because it's like, as you finish this issue, you realize that there are like really big implications here um, because there are, you know, there's different types of, they call them giga, the robots. There's different types of giga in this world. So it's not just all the ones that are being lived in. And also there's different factions of like people with different religious beliefs that relate to them. So, you know, it kind of you kind of get the sense that there's like a really, there's a much bigger mystery here, but then also Mm -hmm. like specifically to Evan, he has his own like little, you know, problems and conflicts and things that he, that are, that are like driving him through this story. And those are a little bit more accessible. Like, you know, just like when you're, when you're reading a, anything or watching anything, you want to have those kind of more human connections that are a little bit smaller thematically mm-hmm. and pull you through. And so that is present. I don't want to give any spoilers. I'm, I'm trying really hard right. to like talk mm-hmm. around it, but um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's appreciate it. We pre- for a book that's yeah. not going to be out for a few months. We all appreciate it. I think, you know, and I'm not like a sci-fi or I am a big sci-fi person, but I'm not like, a like I said, I'm not a mecha girl. I'm not really super into robots, but mm-hmm. like the mystery aspect of this story is definitely really compelling for me. So I think even if you are not, you know, building your little guys, as I know many people lovingly do, um, and <laughs> God love you for it, but <laughs> I don't have the all page. of our builders out there. They're very frustrated that you call them building their little guys, <laughs> <Sorry>. like <laughs> building your robot dolls. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I love you all. I this is just gentle, friendly teasing. I I I also have my weird hobbies, so it's fine. Um, mm-hmm. but anyway, um. You know, there's something I think that there's something here, even if you don't build your robot dolls. And um, in terms of the art, it's really bright and airy. Like I'd seen the cover for this kind of going around Twitter um, because, uh, you know, they're starting to let people know when the order cutoff is. And I, you know, the the artwork in this book is really bright and airy, which I think is a really great aesthetic for sci fi because like mm-hmm. Especially with the robot situation, if you're going to use darkness and really claustrophobic scenes, they're going to be more impactful if that isn't the like one note throughout the whole book, right? Right. right. Um, so yeah, like I think this is a solid first issue. It establishes the world. It gives you characters. There's enough theme uh, that you know kind of what you're getting into, but it has elements of story and relationship and character that, like you know, I think is it's going to really pull you in and make you want to keep reading. Hmm. So that's what I well read done. Pre-ordered <laughs> figured it out. You got me. Yeah. 
I yeah, it's, I saw some people talk, talking about this on Twitter recently, and one of the elevator pitches I read was that it's if J.G. Ballard wrote a uh, Gundam story, and I was like, "Fine, well, got me." So <laughs> right. I will go ahead and clear that one. Yeah. That's great. Paul, what about you? How have you been? What what kind of comics have you been reading? <laughs> uh well, I'm I'm pleased to report that sweater weather has arrived in West Michigan. I'm very happy after mm-hmm. a very hot summer. I can finally wear all my cool jackets again. Um so in the words of Bill S. Preston Esquire and Ted Theodore Logan, things have been surprisingly most excellent and non 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 heinous. Um <laughs> I have been reading a ton of Bill and Ted comics. If you haven't, if you couldn't tell, um, mm-hmm. obviously I watched the new Bill and Ted movie, Bill and Ted Face the Music, which I also rewatched the original films, which were a big deal for me. I was seven when the first Bill and Ted movie came out, so it was made directly for me. And uh, I've always liked the characters. I've always liked the concept of Bill and Ted, and I really loved the new movie. Uh-huh. I mean, I thought the new movie was fantastic. It really was touching and goofy and charming in a way that. Uh, um, it's hard to pull off. So kudos to them. So um, I read Bill and Ted are doomed number one, which is a new series written by Evan Dorkin with art by Roger Langridge. It's kind of a tie in to the new movie. It's a prequel sort of that uh, Dark Horse is publishing and it kind of fills in the gaps uh, leading up to the new movie um, set in the year 2000. And we have the titular characters, Bill and Ted struggling to write the song they're destined to write that's going to unify the world and bring about world peace. So if you don't know what Bill and Ted's about, that's essentially the the short version. Okay. What, what, okay. I don't know how familiar you are with Bill and Ted, but uh, that's kind of what makes it work for me is the idea that these lovable goofballs that everyone writes off as being idiots have a destiny to fulfill. That's very important. They're going to unite the world through their music and it's interesting to go back and revisit this stuff, especially as someone in my late 30s, and really appreciate what makes Bill and Ted work, both the movies and this comic, is their friendship. Like, they're two people that can't imagine not living together. You know what I mean? Like, right. you know that what Aristotle said about friendship? Uh, he said that friends are just one soul inhabiting two bodies. That's what Bill and Ted mm. are. It's like one of the best... Uh, examples of a platonic male friendship I've seen, especially now that they're older and, you know, they're married, they have kids, but, you know, Bill named his daughter Thea and Ted named his daughter Billy. Like they're, they're, they're one person kind of, (laughs) and there's something really charming and touching about that, especially nowadays when things seem so divisive to see a genuine friendship. I really enjoyed it. On top of it, it's very Mm -hmm. fun and goofy. And uh, Evan Dorkin's a perfect writer for this. And I think language is a perfect artist. It's cartoony. There's a lot of little Easter eggs and references. Uh, this issue has a joke about ska, which actually made me laugh out loud. So I won't spoil it, but it's very funny. Okay. <laughs> and and, and I'm really enjoying that. Uh, on top of this new series, I recently found on Hoopla a collection of the original Bill and Ted comic that Evan Dorkin wrote and drew back for Marvel back in 1992 after the second movie came out. So um, oh, nice. I read all of that too. So uh, Boom published it a couple years ago. It's Bill and Ted's excellent comic book. Um, the collection features the adaptation of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and then 11 issues of the series that he did afterwards. And again, uh, Evan Dorkin, if you don't know, he's most famous for doing Milk and Cheese, like the underground alternative comic from the 90, late 90s. And again, his style is very cartoony. There's a lot of background Easter eggs and jokes. Um, it kind of feels more like a Mad Magazine humor comic than uh, adaptation from the films. And that really works because as of, I think a few years ago, 
Evan Dorkin still has never seen the first Bill and Ted movie, but he did the adaptation for Marvel. So again, he's, he's able to find what makes the characters tick, which is their friendship. And he just riffs from there. So, um, if, if you are curious, I think that original comic series is a lot of fun. Um, like I said, it's written and drawn by Dorkin, colors by Robbie Bush, letters by Kurt Hathaway, and a bunch of inkers, including the legendary Marie Severin. And one issue has a page inked by Dave Masicelli. It's the weirdest comic you could imagine. That's so, just one page? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that stuff's really fun. Like I've been kind of mainlining Bill and Ted. And like I said, it's been a very comforting thing to do this uh, in this day and age. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like with the comic book material that's out there, I feel like Bill and Ted now has to go in the ring for the IRCB Movie Club series, right? <laughs> yes, we can it, definitely right? for it, we can uh, fit it in there, no doubt. Um, yes, all right, I dig it. I'm I dig it. Always down to watch Bill and Ted. Um, yeah, so make sure to check that out on Patreon because it's the whole thing, you know. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I also read the first issue of We Only Find Them When They're Dead, but Mike, you read that too, so I'm gonna let you talk about what you thought about it first, actually. So. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, so I I read uh, We Only Find Them When They're Dead. Brian talked about it um, when it was coming out for the show. And <clears throat> I was like, okay, sure, Al Ewing, you can tell me about how people are farming space gods in space. That sounds like very much my shit that's going to get really trippy really fast. And um, I was, it was wild. The concept is wild. It's people mining old dead gods out in space. How many there are, we don't know why they're doing this the world ended and so people are trying to survive in space um it works on a lot of levels like it's it's got a wild concept the characters are very unique it, Al Ewing is like trying to really create some dis distinct characters it reminds me a lot of the manga that I've been reading <laughs> because everything is manga now but I, I shouldn't say like that I feel like Al Ewing is like like cribbing that style or anything I think he's definitely trying to create a unique story um, and the, the only drawback that I found out about it, or I found of this book is the end of the issue. Mm -hmm. Uh, like the story's cool. The world's cool. It's it had a lot of really interesting momentum. Like the, the book was so fast paced. I almost had to like put it down to like take a breather to keep reading. Um, and then the end kind of turned into a, <laughs> we're going to do the thing you didn't think we were going to do, um, which is fine. There's, it, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I'm really curious to see how, where Ewing takes it because he's earned my respect in terms of I'll see what anything he's going to do. I want to see what he's going to do about anything. Cause he made me enjoy the Hulk on a level <laughs> that I didn't know was possible. Right, so right. I will follow you into the void of space where only dead gods live. That's, that's where I'm at with the book. What did you think of it, Paul? I, I about the same experience, you know, I pulled it because of Ewing. Um, I think it's a cool high concept. I like cosmic stuff like that, especially when it's, mm -hmm. when you, there's a sort of mysticism to it. I, it, the book kind of fills the outer darkness shaped hole in my reading, you know, now that that book's ended, yeah. I got similar vibes from this. Um, I really like the artwork too. I think Simone DeMio, um, it's, it's anime and manga influence. I got some Voltron vibes from some of the design elements of it. Heavily. Yeah. And yeah. Um, my, my two sort of drawbacks, uh, which are very minor criticisms, I think similar to you, I found the ending was um, landed flat because the solicitation spoiled it if you read the solicitation for the book that's exactly how it ends is they kind of give it away uh -huh. and then i really like the color palette that they use for the book but i can tell it reads better digitally so i bought the physical copy and i'm like yeah these colors would pop a lot more mm. there'd be more um contrast between them if it was reading it digitally 
other than that, I think yeah, I'm on I, board I mean, I, I, I read it on an iPad. It, okay. it was beautiful. So <laughs> yeah, there you go. I could speak to that, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I love the concept. I, I, Al Ewing's a perfect writer for that kind of stuff. So yeah, I'm on board mm-hmm. for sure. Well, yeah, I guess, uh, for me, the other thing that I did read was I read this book called The Black Mage. This is by uh, Daniel Barnes and DJ Kirkland, uh, with Kirkland on writing and art duties, along with Barnes, who was just just a writer. Um, this is a very on-the-nose YA-styled OGN that slaps you in the face with its satire of race in YA fantasy stories. Like That's the, the high-level pitch I could give you. Going into this book, I didn't know exactly that that's what this book was going to be about, um, that it was going to really just be a straight up satire because it feels from the outside like it's going to be kind of an inspiring story about you know uh, a black kid who's going to an all-white school and how he you know broke these barriers but instead it's about a character named tom token and his and his pet crow jim <laughs> and like it, it's it's so in your face with like the obvious racism of like these ideas of these big fantasy schools where like the one person like the outsider kid gets brought in and blah 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 but they're all white and so the 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 villain of the story is <laughs> is very clearly marked in that he is the headmaster of the school who basically dresses like a kkk like mm-hmm. grand wizard um and so the the story leans on a lot of this stuff it t- touches on like what good white allyship looks like um and how like the the instant many institutes like uh like across the world and in particular probably the united states are you know built on the back of people of color um and yet those those stories get erased and but it's still like very funny it's very witty um it has this like if you look at this book if you go look this book up it has like very bubbly ya style art that is like very cartoony in a really good way it allows for like the in a dynamicism in the in the action and in the storytelling where you can play with these cartoonish elements while also like being very on the nose. I mean, our, our main character, Tom token, he walks into like the fourth page of the story that he's in and he's taking no bullshit from all these dumb white people. Um, it, it was so bizarre, like the cognitive dissonance of seeing this book. That's very like bubbly and cartoony. Like I said, with these really serious topics um, being played upon um, not necessarily directly, but like indirectly through the satirical satirical commentary um, was really interesting. Um, We had like an hour and a half long discussion about this on our discord book club about it because we were really torn as a group about whether or not we liked this book. Mm -hmm. I, I loved it when I read it and it, we changed some minds as people talked about things. It was, it was a really cool discussion. Um, But yeah, so I grabbed this book um, on a whim after I saw someone talking about it on Twitter and man, it was, it was totally worth the price. So if you get a chance, I highly recommend the black mage because it's, it's a really fun book, but it has some very serious commentary um, about race, which I thought was a really, really well way to really, really smart way to put that all together. But yeah, so I guess uh, to move on, let's, let's talk about comic books that are coming out on September 16, 2020. That's when they're dropping. What are you guys excited for this week? I'm going to jump back to you, Paul. Well, probably no surprise to anybody. Um, I'm excited for Detective Comics number 1027 because it's an oversized mm-hmm. anniversary anniversary comic about Batman. Uh, you know, that's two things I love, Batman and oversized anniversary issues. You might wonder right. what, <laughs> what, what the number 1,207, I'm sorry, 1,027 has to do with Batman. Well, Batman first appeared in Detective Comics number 27 way back in 1939. So this is 1,000 issues since his first appearance. Any excuse, 
to charge a few more bucks for a comic, I guess. <laughs> but this is going to be worth it, I think. It's 144 pages, which, I mean, that's that's a trade right there. And it's got a whole bunch of creative teams, including some of my favorite writers and artists. Of course, Grant Morrison and Chris Burnham are teaming back up for a story. Tom King and Walt Simonson are doing a story together. Walt Simonson is a super underrated Batman artist. He's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, Mariko Tamaki and Dan Mora are doing a story. Uh, Matt Fraction and Chip Zdarsky, I don't know if they've ever done Batman together. That would be pretty fun. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yep. What? Yep. <laughs> the sex criminals guys? Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, this is uh, Gotham after midnight, I guess. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I and, dig it. and I of dig course, it. the the obligatory many, many more creators. Uh, yeah, I mm-hmm. don't know. You know me. I like Batman. I'm a sucker for these types of oversized issues. Of course, there's going to be some hints at the future, what the future holds for Detective Comics and Batman as a character. So, yeah, I'm not reading Detective Comics as a series, but of course, I'm going to jump in and buy this anniversary issue. I think I'm getting, of course. I think I'm going to get the Frank Quitely cover uh, of the whatever you know, 27 different covers there are. I think that's what I'm getting. Right. So, yeah. Man, oh man, 144 pages. Holy smokes! Exactly. It's- they might as well just print out trades, right? They're, they're <laughs> going to have that weird thick single page binding which i hate right it's the thing's yeah. gonna fall apart after you open it immediately it'll be interesting maybe i'll have to order a copy of that for myself sure. yeah. <laughs> uh, tia what about like, you what are you excited for this week you are comics like that sentence that whole sentence <laughs> yeah i know right <laughs> this is Let terrible and complain I'm about this thing it. and then yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i my pick for next week is Stillwater Number no. One by Chip Zdarsky, Ramon Perez, and Mike Spicer. It's coming out from oh, Skybound. It looks like a crazy mm-hmm. new horror book. The tagline is Nobody Dies. In the town of Stillwater, that's not just a promise, it's a threat. Which, as a millennial with all sorts of like, you know, existential dread and um, like low key memefied death wish that sounds like mm-hmm. my worst nightmare so <laughs> <laughs> let's see what that's all about yeah that i i almost picked this book it looks wild um and sure let's try it yes. let's see what let's get see what kind of horror zadarsky and co with ramon perez on art and mike spicer yeah. on art i mean like it could be really really fun it's yeah. horror time so why not <laughs> yeah just in time for horror parts of the year um <laughs> like the whole so year for, hasn't been a horror <laughs> i mean right but now we can officially acknowledge it as spooky times begin on <laughs> october 1st right <laughs> i mean any time can be spooky time mike true true i guess uh, that's a whole other discussion we'll we'll get into that uh another time but for me i am excited for excited uh x-men 12 uh x-men number 12 this is by jonathan hickman with art by Lionel francis Yu, colors by sunny go uh, and letters by clayton coles uh this was labeled as a prelude to x of swords number two it's the second prelude um the it's it's a continuation of from excalibur number 12 that will be continued in x of swords creation number one the title is the summary is the summoning begins a lead into the biggest X story of the year. It's fucking September. You guys, <laughs> I, it better be the biggest X-Men story of the year. Otherwise, what have we been doing all year? Um, I'm being very salty because I just want my X branded X sword and my God X damn X hand, please <laughs> sword me up. Um, there's we've been, I feel like we've been building to X of swords for like nine months and it is only September. Um, so like, I know that that math's out, right? But I don't even think Exoswords was announced until, like, March. So mm-hmm. 
all I know is that I'm just ready for all the X-Men to have swords because it seems like Marvel is floundering on what this story actually will be and is hoping that Jonathan Hickman will just pull another like pale, like no color with weird black markings on their skin character out of the woodwork so that he can tell some bizarre story that will give you existential dread and ultimately mean nothing when Marvel decides that they're done with this bullshit again. So um, really excited for this book. <laughs> and uh I mean, Hickman, Hickman's been building this like weird story in the in the main X Men book, where all of the characters are incredibly inconsistently written um, compared to any other X book that's coming out. So I'm just ready for him to execute on what he's been building for the past eleven issues. Finally, hopefully, um, and then we'll get to X of Swords, where swords come from space, and that's it. I don't know if there's any more of the story than that. Um, this feels like Fear itself all over again, but it's just for the X Men. Mike, you guys remember for yourself Mike, <laughs> i don't think anyone does so maybe other than you Mike. yeah 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 actually i do because there were like some good journey in a mystery tie-ins right. for that right. that right. i like yeah mike i just want to say that everything you just said about x-men number 12 captures why i love that the x-men exist and yet i never <laughs> want to read the x-men because sure sure it sounds amazing but once you talk about multiple preludes into crossovers, it just reminds me of when I tried to read the X-Men as a teenager and I jumped in with Age of Apocalypse and it made no goddamn sense at all. Yeah, no. I mean, that's the worst place to ever jump in. <laughs> right. I mean, so I don't know. I mean, th the thing is, like, I feel like in the past, I don't know where Marvel got this idea that it was a good idea to tell multiple stories through this, like, multiple series mm -hmm. like or excuse me tell one story through multiple series because it's it, it feels like the grossest cash grab ever yeah. and yet they know that x fans like myself will pick them all up um because we want the story um but i feel like over the past you know decade they've done it right like three out of eight times um <laughs> and they're still really banking on those three times and they're hoping for a ninth i think with this one because like battle of the atom didn't really work um but messiah complex for me come at me x-men fans worked really really well um <clears throat> the civil war stuff worked really really well so i don't know there this i don't know we, we'll we'll see about how this this x of swords thing works out i will make sure to update all of you <laughs> when i finally get frustrated enough to sit down and just read all of the issues in a row because i'm probably going to wait for like a month before that because i can't <laughs> reading an order thing anyway sure. this is a totally different podcast topic so we're gonna actually we're gonna have some 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 guests on in i think it's next week or the week after uh yeah i think it's next week and it's gonna be a whole x-men um bash so get ready <laughs> for me to just go off um about all this different stuff so anyways we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we have a interesting topic that we're going to discuss um about working in comics question mark so we'll be back in just a second our show this week we are talking about answering the the question in an alternate universe if we weren't sitting here making this here podcast and instead mike paul and tia were comic book creators in some fashion what would our actual jobs be what would we be doing in creating comic books so tia paul and i we sat down and started just writing out a bunch of notes of things where how we could see things based off our experiences you know we could fit into this role the other so i guess i'll throw it to you guys uh maybe we'll start with you paul um 
what what comic book role do you think you would have if you were creating comic books in some fashion? That's an interesting question, Mike. I remember when I started reading comics again, um, God, 10 years ago now, 11 years ago now. Um, and I was in grad school and I was talking to my you know, classmates about comics. And the first question anyone asked me was, oh, do you make comics? And I thought, I've never wanted to. <laughs> so it's this weird thing of like, no, mm-hmm. it's like a weird mm-hmm. thing. Like I've always been a fan. I've always been a, a reader and I've luckily been able to get some criticism and analysis published over the years uh, about comics. I love talking about comics, but the idea of actually creating feels like way too much pressure. So mm-hmm. um, I've tried to come up with story ideas to be a writer. doesn't work. Uh, my artistic skills are lacking to say the least. Um but I was thinking about this question. The things I've always been interested in are the mechanics of comics and how they work. So things like coloring and lettering are things that are sort of invisible in comics. And that's not to degrade the work that goes into them. I just mean that you only really, really notice them if they're really bad or exceptionally good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But they're essential mm-hmm. to the reading experience. Bad lettering will ruin a comic. Bad coloring will ruin a comic. So mm-hmm. I was thinking about that. And lettering is something that it doesn't seem easy. I know a lot of work goes into it, but it seems to be the most interesting part of the comic because it's something I began noticing more and more as I started reading lettering, um, sound effects, uh, the shapes of word balloons and all that. And I've, I've started to dabble in that myself, try to get some experience in digital digital lettering. And uh, it's been fun. So I think that would be my, my inroad into making comics. Yeah. Gotcha. I, I, yeah, I know that like I was I was just looking through like uh, like a list of, of letters. I know like um, Hassan, Amats, uh, excuse me, Hassan Otsmane Elahu, like he's like the guy right now as far as my Twitter feed is concerned <laughs> um, as someone who's in a lot of books as far as lettering. Yeah. And he's also got that YouTube series like Strip Panel Naked where he goes into not just lettering and stuff, but just like the comics creation process and talking to creators and, and studying different books and how they're put together. Yeah. Um, and I, I think right now he has like some of the best insight that you can get on on lettering, like in the most more modern type of ways. I know like other creators out there, like you know Jim Zub have have put up things about how the lettering for their book works, um, and other creators out there, you know like Clayton Coles, um, probably one of the most prolific letterers in in the modern era. Um, as far as him and, and Steve Wands, I think are like on every third book. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's. Interesting because, like, I, I know creators like Alex DeCampi and John Lehman have letter their own books because they have a very distinct idea about how they want their letters to look um, and then, like, how they want their book to be laid out when it comes to that, um, like, working from their script into the actual, like, on top of the art. Mm-hmm. So, um, it also gives them yeah, a it's, chance it's a really... to, like, give the dialogue, like, to tweak the dialogue. But I don't think people realize that, like, it, it'll create a chain effect. If you want to mm-hmm. like make tweaks, you have to go, you know, like it'll affect the artist, it'll affect the letter, it'll affect the colorist. So if you're doing your mm-hmm. own last like line, you know, artistic work, then you can make those changes and it only affects yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I read something from from Alex where she said that she she has like that that thought process constantly that if she wants to make tweaks, she doesn't want to have to pass it down to somebody like she can control it herself, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, coloring and lettering, I mean, those are <laughs> those are crucial, you know? Yeah, I know. It's interesting, too, because, you know, it's. I just remember being a kid and it's the weirdest example to draw, but being a kid and reading an issue of Spawn, which was never really my jam, but I really liked the way that they drew Spawn's um, 
uh, word balloons. I was like, oh, that looks different. It must mm-hmm. sound different than everyone else's. And then, of course, being a teenager and reading Watchmen, like, okay, Rorschach's voice sounds different because the bubble is drawn different. And like that stuff, like you don't even really pause to think about unless you do. Does that make sense? Where it's like, it kind of passes, your eye passes over it at first glance. It's not until you mm-hmm. kind of think about what that means that you start to wonder about that. And there's certain... Well, it's that... Yeah. it's. It's a it's a piece of like comic literacy that you have, right? Mm-hmm. That even even I think at a young age, like a, you can you can teach a kid who like some comic literacy like unintentionally by sh- saying like a word balloon looks like this, yeah. and the text is going to be you know black text on on a white background, and that is a normal word balloon. Anything that changes from that, even the shape of the word balloon, mm-hmm. implies something to them. Yeah. And as you start to add more and more dramatic changes onto it, it starts to really influence, I think, the interpretation, yeah. um, which. It's something that I don't think I realized until, you know, much later in my comic book reading career or whatever you want to call it, um, that like th- those types of things are so important. Like this, and this is why I respected books like like Chew, for instance, where the lettering would like not only would there be like a change in the dialogue bubble, but there would be like subtle colors or like when someone was saying something in a cold way, literally icicles would be hanging from the word balloon. Yeah. Like it's so it's so beautiful to see that kind of stuff um, when letterers are, are putting that much thought into not just the the how the, the dialogue should be like displayed on the page, but mm-hmm. also with like the interpretation by little subtle things like that. Um, it's, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. And it goes into page design as well. I mean, I remember when I read some of the Walt Simonson Thor stuff that John Workman was lettering and just the way he would use, Workman would use uh, sound effects. Um, Mm -hmm. It was part of the page design as much as Walt Simonson's artwork. It became part of the experience. And Workman is one of those letters when I see his, I know his stuff right off the bat. If I'm reading a comic, nine times out of 10, I can say, I bet that's John Workman just based on the shape of the letters and the page design. And I'm usually right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, being able to defi- have a unique, definable style, and that's all you do, is lettering, is, is pretty remarkable. So, yeah. For sure. Well, Tia, what about you? What's your, what's your thoughts on what you'd be doing as a as a comic book creator of some kind? Well, I'm definitely more of a reverse engineer. I'm not a creator. So, mm-hmm. um, and I do a little bit of this work, like, in my actual job, Um I think people don't realize editors do a lot more than just give notes to creators. You know, you're sort of the, Mm -hmm. um, the eye of the logistical hurricane. You, so much of editorial work is like herding cats and then making people feel good about themselves and their work, even when they're like kind of messing up so that they don't, completely implode so that you could kind of keep things on deadline and like Mm -hmm. you're you're just the central hub of logistical stuff like you know have you always wanted to be the human embodiment of the movie brazil then (laughs) be an editor (laughs) um but i think that also you know i people who listen to the show know that my background is in art history. And so a lot of my analytical training is in art specifically and how to, how art is put together to tell stories. So I'm not coming Mm -hmm. at it from a literature background. I don't um, focus as much on the, on the like writing or in terms of like the words um, or the, which on in a comic will come out as dialogued for a lot of people. So I'm, I tend to look really closely at art when I read comics and I feel like I don't, 
I don't know if that's a huge editorial focus outside of people who are actually artists. And Mm -hmm. they're always going to bring an element of like, this is how I would have done it when they are breaking things down. Whereas with me, I'm really just looking at how does this work? How does it not work? What is the story that's being told by how this is literally like put together? So um, I think those are aspects of editing. I I worry sometimes that people are like, I want to make comics, but I'm not an artist or a writer. I'll be an editor. And there really is so much more to being a comics editor than that. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, there's, there's like a, like the whole management side of it is also, I think a part of it, Right. Um, um, which I, I think is, is, is very like unseen work like we're talking about how lettering and and coloring is like invisible um contributions in a way you know unless it's bad or if it's good i think editing is kind of in the same way but even if um like it's so unseen you only get to see it in the credit you know Mm -hmm. if if it's even credited in some cases yeah um and you know marvel and dc i think have a a much more prevalent like hey this is edited by so and so um but it's it's a much more rare i think on independent books to see like a an editor credit because that usually means there's another person that's brought into the process to make it all work um but that person is also kind of brought in like a producer in some ways where they like for a tv show or something where they're kind of juggling a lot of different things and then making sure that everything happens in the way that it should connecting people and making sure that communication is clear and so on and so forth so um, right. You're the problem in, solver. In that way. You're the, yeah. you have to keep everybody on track. You have to manage everybody's feelings. There's a lot of feelings that go into making comics. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I think from everything that we've learned probably over the past like decade, like there is just a lot of feelings in comics in general. Um, and it's only made louder because we have social media, you know, <laughs> and, and more harsh and extreme because of that. Yeah. So an editor's job is to turn off your Twitter for 24 (laughs) hours so that you can get work done or something, right? (laughs) I feel like in terms of the more creative roles, I probably, like, I could be a writer. I have written things. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, I have a lot of creator friends. I want to hang out with them. It's like they are constantly absorbing the world and making things into stories. Like, Literally, uh, just a throwaway nothing. Well, what I what I am hanging out with Mags, it's like all of a sudden she's got this three act story with like well developed themes and characters and like humorous anecdotes and feelings, and that's just how she operates. That's just her brain mm-hmm. works that way. That's how she processes the world. And I don't have that. I don't do that naturally. I understand like why it needs to be done to to write things so i think i probably could do it but it would not be fun for me mm-hmm. yeah i i've i feel like i've tried to, to write things in the past and uh like in in my ideal world like if we're talking about like ideal scenario like i would totally write comic books but <laughs> i feel like i always get stuck in the first like you know third of things where um i i dig way too deep into the details and i can't streamline anything to actually get to the end um and then just get you get lost in the minutiae of things and it's just like well then how do i even what is the point of anything stories mean nothing at the end of the day and you know then i don't want to do anything Mm -hmm. um but 
I mean, if 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 we're if I'm thinking about myself, I'm thinking probably like again, probably more editor, just because that's a natural like through line or straight line from what kind of what I do for this show, where I'm you know producing and and managing folks and scheduling things and organizing stuff. Um, probably not reaching out as much as probably a comic book editor needs to in terms of managing people and feelings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that's what the job requires and I get to do it as part of my part time or full time job, then um, I'm sure I could do it, but, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, uh, don't, don't know if I could be in that position of, of writing constantly. And like, like you said with mags, like just absorbing things and turn it into three, three X structures, because I think what's, what's really interesting is that like, you know, the three of us and everyone on the show here, we, we sit down and we, we walk through all of these comics that we read, you know, for analyzing a volume or a full story or just a single issue. I think we, as readers can pick up on all of those beats and we can start to see themes and we discuss them. Um, but when you turn around and you have to sit down and be the person that creates that thing, like you understand all of the beats of it, but to actually come up with a story, um, I think is maybe the, the, the hardest part, yeah. um, to that, that fits within those three, those like a three act story if we were, we were to come up with something. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we just in this alternative universe, we all tried and then we fell back and we created this podcast again. Um, who knows? <laughs> but with ex- industry experience under our belts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because I think being sort of the more voracious comic book readers that I think we are, we notice that stuff more than other people do. It's, you know, comics are the things that they show up on the shelves every week and you don't really think about the work that goes into them. I remember being a kid and mm-hmm. just thinking, oh, I could be an inker because all you do is trace the pencils, right? And then, you know, getting older, <laughs> I was like, oh, no, there's actually a lot more work. Like, that's even that's too much pressure for me. So, and we can put that <laughs> clip in from uh, the, the, right, the Kevin Amy. Smith film yeah. and chasing Amy. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you don't, I mean, <laughs> when you really think about the work that goes into it, every part is important. I mean, you know, lettering seems like, you know, the last part of the process but again it's arguably as important as anything else because if the if the letters are difficult to read or if the word panels aren't in the right order mm-hmm. it changes the experience i think we've all had experiences where something you don't know which pan which word balloon to start with and it's really frustrating you know so mm-hmm. all of that being able to understand the innate sort of nuts and bolts of the comic reading experience i think that's something as people that read a lot of comics we already have a foot up in that regard for that stuff for sure i mean there's there's kind of a kind of like a, a weird thing that that i think could be said that like in a lot of ways like comic books are written for other comic creators <laughs> to consume so that they can build off of to create their own stories and get better based off of that in some ways sure. um which is something that i was thinking i was thinking about a lot when i i've been reading a lot of you know one piece um i forgot to give my one piece update earlier in the episode i finished chapter 849 today folks <laughs> i'm gonna make it to a thousand i'm gonna make it before what chapter 1000 comes out but um as i've been reading through a lot of that um there's been some really funny moments in the back of uh the books or back of the the volumes that are broken up into single chapters for the shonen jump app and one of the the like two of the moments that were mentioned in in the back recently were that one piece came out started coming out like 1997 um and then the creator who now creates the widely popular my hero academia wrote in in like volume 23 with some fan art and now they are also getting published like side by side of you know to to one piece and then later the same thing happened with naruto naruto ended and there was a whole back page that was just like you know i'm very thankful to have worked alongside of naruto and blah blah blah, blah because 
to me, all of these these creators, at least in Japan, I, mean, I know it's the same here in the US, right? Like a lot of comic book creators are also reading a lot of comics um, where like we're reading and uh, like we're all fans of the, the way that these other creators are creating things. And so when they sit down to actually like write their own books, you know, they, they pull some ideas and not to say that anybody's stealing from anybody, but you know, those ideas inspire bigger and better ideas in some ways. Um, and of course that works, that works negatively too, right? We, we have the Punisher and therefore we have people who like that kind of obscene violence, not getting the idea that Punisher is kind of a bad guy, right? Or judge dread is kind of the bad guy. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, I had a point to this point to this idea, but I think that where where I was going is that like it's it's funny like the comic book industry is so small um that it feels like sometimes comic books specifically when we're talking about just the medium of comics um is just made for like a small like group of people to then create more comics for each other um which I I I feel like is is an idea that's been touched upon and I don't know if if this is making any sense to you guys but um like this is like it's touched upon pretty heavily in Japan where like comic like manga creators are reading other manga and then they're pulling things in and you can see influence um over a long period of time i think this happens in france a lot too with like with franco-belgian books where like you see an idea and then because of that like people will say oh i was heavily inspired by this other comic and you can see it once they start to point it out um yeah i i, I realize this is so far away from the central <laughs> topic but it's something that i've just been thinking about for the last like two weeks so please tell me something is making sense here <laughs> No, I, I think I know what you're getting at. The idea that uh, to be creative requires, you know, the influence of other people, you know, to do you have to be engaged with the mm-hmm. art form directly in order to create in it. So that makes a lot of sense. Oh, I think that that also the best creators um, also synthesize ideas and influences from outside the medium and sort of uh, like translate them into comics you know, mm-hmm. like there are a lot of creators who who constantly are talking about games and books and movies and, you know, mm-hmm. also fashion. Like there's all sorts of things that get absorbed and brought into the ecosystem. So it isn't like a, a kind of echo chamber of comics. That's true. That's true. Yeah. You know, and it's always interesting to see where influences pop up. I, this, this is way off topic, but I think it's we're headed that direction. It's fine. Anyway. At this point, you know, <laughs> this this topic was weak and we're just going to run with it. Let's just go. When you see uh, influences that seem to cross uh, genre or cross, you know, types of comics, I just always think when I'm reading Love and Rockets and I'll see Jaime Hernandez drop in like a straight up Jack Kirby panel. I'm like, yeah, that of course, he grew up reading Marvel. So that even though he's mm-hmm. doing something that feels radically different, that influence is always there. And he learned his chops by tr- you know tracing that stuff as a kid and developing it and then use that to develop his own style. There's a panel mm-hmm. in the Love and Rockets story where uh, Maggie is you know avoiding the rain. So she's hiding somewhere and she sees a dog that's also avoiding the rain. And the dog is crouched underneath a giant piece of machinery it's the same piece of machinery that spider-man strapped under in amazing spider number 33 and when i noticed that i was like oh my gosh that's such an obvious reference but you never would have thought to put a spider-man reference a steve ditko reference in a love and rockets comic but again it speaks to that Mm -hmm. cross pollinate cross pollination we're talking about yeah 
Yeah, I mean, to, to go off of Tia's point, you know, bringing fashion into comics, I think, like, I follow Kevin Wada and Chris uh, Anka, like, on Twitter. Like, I, I, well, I think one of my favorite things is the thing that I think Kevin Wada was doing for a little bit where he would just post, like, a character model, like, someone standing, like, in a just kind of a neutral pose. And then he would ask people to, like, draw on top of it and, like, style them in different, like, pieces of clothing. And not to say that I think that any of that inspired something to go into comics, but I think it's people experimenting with their own styles based off of a, f- a simple idea that's that that uh, uh taking a theme and just moving on it and then i think based off of that i think that gives people the idea of adding more fashionable looks into comics and then you end up with something like runaways um <laughs> like the the rainbow rowell run of runaways where you know chris anka started on that book and he was doing like lookbooks for every issue um which is to me like i never would have thought i wanted something like that or that i would find something like that interesting but it, it's proof that he's thinking about like how like he's thinking about these characters beyond just what's happening on the page he's thinking about them in different poses and different styles in order to make sure that when he needs to draw them in a in like an action scene or just a standing scene or sitting like he's got all of those things kind of modeled out in his head about the direction like he's got a 360 view of what the character looks like um and he knows how these clothes are going to function when the body inside of them moves and if this is just 2d cart like 2d drawings but it it makes them so much more richer when they look realistic. It just, it blows my mind. Um, So what I'm saying is what we would all end up being then now is people that consume a lot of content and then come back once every 10 years and we write a single comic book. (laughs) Right. Is that what I'm hearing is the ideal scenario in this ultimate universe? Yeah. I think we could, uh, we could uh, power Rangers or Voltron together. One single creator out of all of our experiences and ideas. (laughs) (laughs) We're always bringing it back to the those weird robot dolls. <laughs> That's yeah. a theme for this episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I don't know. I I don't know if you guys have any more any more thoughts on this. I just thought it was kind of an interesting idea um, because I, I I don't know what you if you guys had tried creating comic books in the past or if you had any any aspirations to because I know we've had people on the show who were like I was comic books writer or comic book critiquer and now I'm writing comic books. Um, and I think that's how some other people have gotten, you know, their start where they, uh, like the, the story that will always blow my mind is like Kelly Sue started as like a, a letterer for like English translated manga, mm-hmm. um, which was like, uh, it, at the time was like not a, a lucrative job by any means, but that was like her, her inset into comics. And now she is, fucking kelly sudaconic right. <laughs> um and i i think it's interesting like that i, I don't know if you if we if people were going to create comics like how they got their start is also kind of an interesting topic that's not directly related but um as you can see i'm all over the place <laughs> with this topic because i have a lot of thoughts on it but i don't know how to i don't know how to concisely deliver them so someone please save me um, well i think i think getting into comics feels daunting right so if you want to do mm-hmm. it uh, the easiest way to do it is just start doing it. If that makes any sense, where it's like everyone, right, right. if you want to be an artist, start sketching. Like, you know, I, lettering is interesting to me. I've kind of got a few programs. I've got some style guides. I'm trying to figure out how lettering works, and it's just I'm. It's a hobby right now, but maybe if you keep plugging away at it, it'll lead to something. So the idea of arriving in comics fully formed doesn't happen. It just it, it starts off as a hobby and an interest that you kind of develop over time. And I think it's really hard to make yourself do that because you kind of want to be good at it right away. At least that's my experience. So I think yeah. I think it's sort of a piecemeal thing. And I think as we've been saying, if you're interested in it to that degree, then it, it behooves you to try to find your niche or your way into it. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I guess uh, I, I asked to, to wrap this episode up. I feel like I need to explore this more and come back to it, but that'll probably be on the Mike gets just wild on a Discord rant sometimes. <laughs> so uh, get hyped about that, folks, because that's something that happened after the last book club, and I really, really enjoyed it. If you want to know my thoughts about comic book piracy and why it's bad, <laughs> um, sure. I have a whole I have a whole thing prepared, I guess. But um, anyway, so I guess if you guys want to, you want you can follow us all on Twitter. You can follow Tia at Portrait of Madam X, um, spelled the cool uh, French way. You can follow Paul at Ohio Polly. You can follow me at Mike Rappin, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast on Twitter and Instagram. This show and our many subscriber-only episodes are powered by fans like you on Patreon. Join now at patreon.com slash Podcast. Also, if you haven't already, please rate and review our show. Uh, we would really appreciate five stars. Uh, you could review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can join us and a lot of our fans and listeners over at Discord at ircbpodcast.com slash Discord, and be sure to tell a friend or two about the show. Uh, Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music. Uh, We can't thank them enough for letting us use their music. Xander is a very cool guy. He is a really fun dungeon master, and he is a great editor. Um, We can't thank him enough for spending his time making us sound fantastic. Uh, I want to say thank you to Paul and Tia for being on this episode, and thank you to everyone out there who listens to the show and hangs out with us on Discord and stuff like that. And until next time, comics are good, and so are you. Yeah, I could go on about this whole thing. I just, I love the, in my mind, I just picture. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I didn't want to put everybody through it um, without being properly prepared for it, you know? Put that behind the paywall, Mike. People will pay for your X-Men rants. I guarantee it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I love the, I mean, that's what this, that's what this podcast started off as, was Mike just ranting about comic books, and then it turned into, maybe can't just be that. It turned into many people ranting about comic books. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea that the you know the X Men writers were all together at a retreat or something, and there's just the whiteboard of ideas, and it's got like time travel, like X babies, and all crossed off. And at the very bottom, someone just wrote swords question mark. And like, all right, <laughs> time for X swords. Yeah, that's. I mean, well, it, the problem is that they crossed out babies because they did that before. Right, they crossed exactly. out time travel. They did that before they crossed off like alternate universe because they did that before like all these things they've already done and now they're trying to do something original and of course apparently the only person (laughs) who can come up with an original idea that marvel will run with is jonathan hickman when i know that there are many writers out there who aren't him that could probably come up with better ideas it's just that he's known as being the guy who did secret warriors um (laughs) that's not what he's known for but that's mike is now on about jonathan hickman podcast (laughs) i mean i have plenty of thoughts about jonathan hickman i just uh just need the the position to and time to think about them to deliver them mini sewed it out yeah i mean that's probably the right way to do it (laughs) yeah because then i'd have to go back and reread all of his stuff and and everything that comes along with that between nightly news and black monday murders i feel like he knows things